0: left off last week in the year 1850, or at least after 1850, when we're told that the church in Philadelphia's era ended then. And if you follow the eras of the Christian church in Revelation two and three, and after Philadelphia's end, there's another one waiting, isn't there? So you really don't have to be a prophet to figure out or to discern which era we're living in or which church is our church. If it ended in 1850 and Laodicea rises up, then what church are we in right now? Laodicea. Um, Like I said, you don't really need to be a prophet to discern that. But when I ask older Adventists, and we don't have any older Adventists in here, but when I do, when there is older Adventists around me um, and I ask them, their hands shoot up because they know the answer. And what is the answer if I, if I ask, what church are we? What era are we living in? What is the modern Seventh-day Adventist church? We are what? We are allowed to see it. And what I think is funny about that, and it is very funny, is that I always point out that we're more excited that we know the answer than we are about doing something about it. And that's Laodicea right there. That's Laodicea in a nutshell. Knowing something that someone else may not, that's what we like. I am rich and have need of nothing. So we move on today. And I thought what I'd do is, I kind of did this with Philadelphia, and I wanna do this with Laodicea. With Philadelphia, I just went through the letter the first time. Just went through the letter, got us familiar with the language, familiar with the letter itself. And then the following week, we talked about historical prophetic application. I'd like to do that with Laodicea too. Do you you mind, would you like to just sit in the letter for a little bit, sit in the language um, as to what we've been facing, say, since 1850. It begins in chapter three, Revelation chapter three, verse 14, it says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. Jesus comes to this church as the one who is faithful to the covenant, the one, the second Adam, if you will. the the Adam that comes along and succeeds where the first Adam failed. He is the the one faithful to the covenant. He is the one true witness to God's character. If you wanna know what God is like, who he is like, all you need is Jesus. He is the character of God. So he can admonish a church who claims to be faithful, who claims to be a church of Christ but simply is not. He's allowed to uh, admonish and rebuke and gently discipline a church that claims to be his, but really isn't. Many ways, the message is like the one to Sardis. Laodicea has no apostasy, has no heresy, has no Jezebel, yet Jesus can't find one good thing to say about her. No heresies, but yet not one good thing to say about her. Jesus' analysis to the church is, I know your works. I know who you are. Remember, he tells the church that. I know exactly who you are. I know everything about you. That's why I'm here, that's why I can come to you. I know your works. You are neither cold nor what? Or hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. Imagine that. He even wishes that we would be cold. He wishes that we would at least be far enough away that we'd be cold. But you're neither, he says, you're neither. By the way, if you're feeling uncomfortable that I refer to we, well, we've already established that we are allowed to see us, so who's he speaking to? He's speaking directly to us, isn't he? In a prophetic standpoint, in a in a historical era standpoint, this is it, right? Loud to see it when you're just looking at it uh, um, forensically, if you will, looking at the era. This this is the last church. This is this is the last shot before the second coming. So, is it okay if I refer to we? It's not that we don't find elements of the church of ourselves in Philadelphia and Sardis and Thyatira. It's not that we don't find those elements. All I'm saying is, is that the era standpoint plants Laodicea right here. We are them, we are Laodicea. I think the message to the seven churches is always for the church in general. But the era in which we are is this is us. Same way that back in 1840, the church could say that we were Philadelphia, except they they wouldn't, because you didn't know that until after it happened. (laughs) Remember, uh, interpreting prophetic history is just that. The only way to surely interpret prophecy is to interpret it after it already happened, right? So the members of Philadelphia probably wouldn't have even known that they were in Philadelphia. By the way, that's one of the privileges of living in the last days, is that we get to recognize who they are, who we were in them. So I'll refer to we, if that's okay. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are, what, lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, Dr. John Pauline uh, in his uh, fantastic many, many lectureships on Revelation three and the seven churches says this. He says, hot and cold drinks can be refreshing. Lukewarm is nauseating. Six miles from ancient Laodicea is the ancient city of Hierapolis. It's the Yellowstone Park of the ancient Middle East. There are areas of huge geysers and boiling springs and terraces with hot mineral water pouring over the sides. These are just a couple of pictures of them. The terraces are so extensive that you can see them clearly from Laodicea, even on a hazy day. The water comes out extremely hot, anywhere from 130 to 150 degrees. The water enters the river. By the time it reaches downstream to Laodicea, It's cooled a bit, but guess what temperature it is? It's lukewarm. A further six miles down the river is Colossae. By the time the water gets to Colossae, it's cold. Colossae is where the church of the Colossians was located. Jesus might be taking a cue from the geography of Laodicea. He would have known it, John would have known it, He would prefer that it was hot or cold, but at Laodicea, the water is lukewarm. If we lived in Arizona, especially Phoenix or Yuma, long enough, we know what that's like to jump in that pool in August, right? And we can't wait to get back out. Because you're just kind of floating there. (laughs) Because it feels like, well, you know what it feels like. Dr. Pauline adds, he says, he stayed in a hotel in the modern Turkish town of Pamukale, the Hotel Pam. He said, it's a very, very special hotel. If you're ever in Turkey, this is a must stay, he says. Series of swimming pools on the hillside filled by one of these springs. And, and uh, it's filled by a fountain dr- dr- uh, taken directly from one of these springs and the pools are designed to look like these springs, but they all belong to the hotel. They're all man-made except for the water. And the series of pools on the hillside are like these terraces. They filter down all the way down. It comes out at 135 degrees. The water cascades down to pools some 12 different levels Until you get to a pool all the way down, as the water went all the way down, and as it did, it would cool each a little bit cooler than the preceding one. And finally, there was a waterfall that would cool the pool next to it, and beside it was a modern swimming pool, completely unheated, and it would be cold. He said, go there and sit one time with a drink and watch and just observe the swimmers and the bathers. Nobody swims in the middle pools. They're all either at the top or they're all the way down at the bottom. We gravitate to the hottest and the coolest when we want our water. It seems the hot and cold are refreshing. By the way, only hot and cold are therapeutic. I never heard anybody, physical therapist or my wife or any provider say, you stranger your hamstring, put a lukewarm pack on it. Lukewarm attracts no one. It's useless. The church is absorbed in mediocrity. They were satisfied with less than God's best. This word here, to spit you out, is the same word that we get the word emesis from. Literally means to vomit. Dr. Pauline, I have to warn you, Jesus has a most interesting response to his church at Laodicea, which by the way is not his church, is what he's saying, but he says, when I look at you, I want to throw up. And eventually I will. So as the letter goes, the churches. Steady decline. This last one, as as the church began to decline, with Ephesus beginning, leaving out its first love, the church to begin to practice for the next 1,500 years without the love of God, or try to enforce some sort of version of the love of God, to substitute the love of God for something else. By the time it gets to this last church, it has steadily declined to the point to where it actually makes the God that the church claims to worship sick. Revelation 3.17, it says, because you say, this is what makes, this is what gets him, this is what causes him to convulse with this. This is what uh, uh, gets him to say this. It's because you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I what? I need nothing. But you don't realize, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, if he didn't say that, if he didn't say that, then I would just, I would attribute some of my own fallenness to him and I would say, well, the church makes him sick because you know, they won't worship him, because they, they don't love him, because they're idolatrous. That's what makes him sick. No, what makes him sick is that we're dying and we don't even know it. See, and Jesus made sure, he wanted to make sure that none of us ever had to die. And the church is dying and they don't even know it. They won't even acknowledge it. And life is standing right in front of him, actually not right in front of him. Life is standing on the other side of the door wanting to get in. This is what makes him sick. What makes him sick is that the children that he loves are dying and they don't know it. Laodicea is a defiant assurance in one's own resources which makes it an inauthentic Christian church. You can't not be in need and be a Christian. The fundamental thing that you have to understand as a Christian is that we are in constant need. We're in need of him. We're in need of his righteousness. We're in need of life. This church says to life, no, I'm good. I don't need it. Don't need you. I've got everything else wired. This is what makes Laodicea inauthentic. They're not an authentic church. Notice. They have no heresies. They have no idolatry. They're not doing any of those things. There isn't anything bad about this church. It's right because they say that it is. I am rich and have need of nothing. He's not admonishing them like the prophets of old. They're not, uh, they're, they're, they're not uh, promiscuous. They're not, uh, lis- you know, they don't practice licentiousness. They don't have any of those things. The problem is, is that because they believe they don't have any of those things, they don't need anything. And they've locked him on the other side of the door. By the way, a door that Philadelphia opened that he promised would never ever be shut. The reality versus perception. This church, she is not living in reality because she is blind to her true condition. See, it's the opposite of Smyrna. Laodicea is literally rich and spiritually poor. The city was too, by the way. Laodicea in 60 CE was leveled by an earthquake. But when the emperor offered money to help, Laodicea said, no sweat, we're good. We got the reserves. They rebuilt their city completely on their own with no help from Rome. This is the point with Laodicea that cannot be overemphasized there's not one good thing about her. All the while, not one bad thing about her. Laodicea is worse off than Sardis. In Sardis, there were a few people walking in white, remember? There are a few walking in white. In Laodicea, guess what? How many are? No one. No one's walking in white. There is no remnant. Everyone is in need here. In Sardis, there were a few. This is a judgment on the people. This is a judgment on the entire church. This is the judgment on every one of us. There's no one in Laodicea that is right with God. Yet the collective voice comes from the other side of the door saying, Lord, we're rich. We have need of nothing. So Jesus counsels, he says, therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may what? So that you may see. Remember he told them, Not only were they not rich, they were poor. Not only were they not uh, in a place to be envied, they are pitiful, they're pitiable, if you will. And not only do you not see, you are blind. So first there's a warning. The warning in verse 16 is I'm about to what? Spit you out, has he? He has not, has he? Okay, he has not. Very, very important. Very, very important. And I'm not. I, and I'm not here to tell you that we're going to know if he has. See, the problem with Laodicea is they wouldn't even know if he has, right? Why? Because they're good. They're not cold. They're not hot. He could spit us out right now. We wouldn't even know it. I got enough of my righteousness. I got enough of my walk. I give partial credit to the Holy Spirit, but I'm good. So I'm just saying that to try to figure out when he's going to spit us out, to try to figure out when probation is open or closed, it doesn't matter with Laodicea. He could have spit us out yesterday and we wouldn't even know it. We'd still be here worshiping. I'm about to spit you out. So is it time to get serious? Okay, it is. It's time to do something about the inauthenticity, if you will. That's our problem. We're not an authentic Christian church. We need to do something about that, right? Either that, or we need to quit taking people's tithe. He said, I want you to buy what? I want you to buy gold. Wait a minute, we got gold? He goes, not that gold. <laughs> it's not what I'm talking about. I know you got gold, but you're buying stuff you don't need. That gold you do not need. You need this gold. Gold that is what? Refined, if you will, refined in the fire. So is this real gold he's talking about? No, it's not. It's not real gold he's talking about. It's, it's spiritual gold, right? It's, it's, it's a symbol. Everywhere else in Revelation, get this, Dr. Pauline points this out. Everywhere else in Revelation, gold is real. Gold is gold. The same, way, the same gold that is today. In, in chapter 17, Babylon is decked in it. In chapter 18, uh, I mean the prostitute of Babylon is decked in it in 17. In 18, it's a product of Babylon. In chapter 21, it's the material making up the new Jerusalem which we know is a real city, right? So everywhere else in Revelation, gold is the metal. It's the real gold. These don't help us here. Those don't help us here because this isn't real gold he's talking about. Laodicea had real gold. But they don't have what? They don't have spiritual gold. You know, and this took me by surprise. We're told that uh, figuratively, gold is only used figuratively in one other place besides this verse right here, one other place, and it's in First Peter chapter one. Verse six, Peter says, in this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have to suffer various trials. It's so the genuineness of your faith being more precious than what? More precious than gold, though perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter says figurative gold is our what? It's our faith. And by the way, is our faith strengthened or weakened by trial? It's strengthened. Refined gold is faith, which makes it more trustworthy than gold. Ah, oh, man, we're asleep today. Refined gold is our faith, which makes it more trustworthy than gold. There we go. Way to go, Laodicea. It. It's been tested. There are many types of faith, but the one that is gold is the one that's been tested. End of life, end of the world. That's some pretty heavy tests right there. Faith in what? Faith in who? Well, the next thing is I want you also to get what? White robes so that I may clothe you. This is the third time we've seen them. We're going to see them a, a couple more times in the Book of Revelation. They're offered in Sardis these white robes. They were offered back in Sardis. Remember, back when the church begin, when when the church truly begins to die, they were offered the, these robes. They're the same garments in chapter four, verse four that the twenty four elders are wearing, and they're around the throne of heaven. Remember, we pointed that out, that those 24 elders are a representative of all humanity, and they are clothed completely in white. So these garments are both a present and a future reality. Garments of salvation. This is last day righteousness. A robe that was given to us. The parable of the wedding garment was the only way into the banquet was you had to be wearing what? You had to be wearing your garment. That was your invitation. There's a guy that tries to get in without a garment. The king has to say, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? You gotta, I always pointed out in that parable too is that if he had an excuse, don't you think he'd say it? But he didn't, did he? He got the garment, but he left it at home. He didn't think he needed it. You could call that parable when Laodicea comes to a wedding. She's a church, but she's outside the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. She's very well inside the kingdom that is here. Very well inside, we do very well in the kingdom of the world, apparently. They've got money, they've got everything they need. I'm rich, I have need of nothing. They do very well in this kingdom, but they can't get in to the kingdom that Jesus brings because they won't put on their what? They won't put on their garment. And to me, it all could be cured if they would just do this. The next thing I want you to give is salve to what? To anoint your eyes. See, the reason I won't put on my garment is because I'm blind to my condition. I don't need the garment. I'm rich, I have need of nothing. I'm not a sinner. I do the right things. I'm not perfect, but I'm so much better than my sister over there. See their greatest problem is their inauthenticity. See, the remnant's true attraction isn't that they are not, uh, isn't that they are perfect, or it's not that they are uh, sinless, or it's not that they are righteous. It's they are sinners. They are fallen. They have no righteousness, but they know it. They see it. They see their condition. And when they see their condition, you know what they do? The gold that allows them to believe that they can have righteousness and that they can have the robe, they they then are able to see that, so they ask for it. They put the robe on, they hold their hand out. He fills it with righteousness and gold. The authentic church doesn't uh, appeal to people because of their goodness. They appeal to their people because everyone is bad. We all need Christ, and the only way that we can truly invite other bad people is to admit that we were too. But if we don't let him salve our eyes and let us see our true condition, poor, pitiable, blind, naked, then we'll continue to walk around in whatever pitiful robe it is that that we believe gets us anywhere. I remember Morris Venden pointing out that the one thing that we didn't see is he said, friend, how did you get here without a wedding garment? Elder Venden believed that he's standing there naked. And the host is trying to, you know, trying to be kind, but you can't come into the wedding naked. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page seven, Ellen White says this, He who feels whole, he who thinks he's reasonably good, is contented with his condition, does not seek to become a partaker of the grace and righteousness of Christ. In other words, they don't seek to become a believer, do they? They don't seek to be a member of the church of Christ. They're very good and well with the church that they're in. Those who know they cannot possibly save themselves or of themselves do any righteous action are the ones who appreciate the help that Christ can bestow. They are the poor in spirit whom he declares to be blessed. Feeling whole, feeling rich, feeling remnant, feeling right, feeling as the only one that has present truth, This church is good with that. So he says, I reprove and I what? I discipline those whom I love. Be earnest therefore and repent. By the way, all the discipline happened in the previous chapter. That sounds pretty good to me. That's not the way my dad used to discipline me, amen? He didn't bring me gold, new clothes, some soothing salve for my eyes. Somehow we think, we think that reproving or discipline somebody you know, has to do with the way that we reproved and disciplined our own children. That's not what this is about. He just said what the discipline was, right? So in a way, the discipline proves his love for us. Doesn't negate it. Oh, by the way, Laodicea, they're very good with reproving and disciplining too. They believe they've been given that job. And the church has no problem reproving, disciplining people that don't seem to measure up, and we'll go ahead and put them outside the door. Because obviously, obviously, they're just not cutting it. And by the way, if Jesus is standing outside the door, Then that's a good place for sinners to be kicked out to. Instruct, be honest, be authentic. How many in loud to see are lukewarm? Are there any remnant? Not according to this. Not according to this. Paul points it out too in Romans. What, are, what then, he says, what then? Are we better off speaking to Hebrews, if you will? Speaking to Jews, because remember the argument in chapter three in Romans is, here's what's wrong with the Gentiles, okay? And after he listed everything that was wrong to the Gentiles, he now turns to the believers. He now turns to the church and says, what then? Are we any better off? What's the answer to that? No, he says, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of what? Under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. Interesting, out of all the churches, love is only offered to Laodicea and to Philadelphia. The best church and the worst church. Love is only offered to those. God in particular addresses those churches with the expressed love of himself to the least and the most faithful church. In Laodicea it comes in this form of rebuke, chastening, discipline. He also speaks to Laodicea though to come to the door. Come to the door and invites them to invite him in. Listen, he says, I am standing at the door. I'm standing at the door. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and what? Eat with you and you with me. If the door at Philadelphia is the door of salvation, then this is the opposite it's shut. And it's not shut by Jesus, it was shut by the church herself. Somewhere between 1850 and now, the church decided to shut the door on Jesus and lock him out. By the way, I believe, I shouldn't say it because it's being recorded for posterity, but I believe the first time that Mrs. White ever addressed us as Laodicea was 1870, I think, somewhere around there. Took the church twenty years to figure out that somewhere we closed the door. He's just asking to be invited in. For what? For a spanking? For a tongue lashing? For some sort of uh, uh, penance to be given? To have a what? To have a meal? Let's eat. Also, he tells loud to see. keep an eye on the reward and the reward is I'll come in, I'll sit at the table and whoever will, whoever will let me in, I'll give you a place on my throne. By the way, what he's saying is is that his throne is wherever he is. If he's sitting with you at your table, that table is now the throne of all heaven. That's why he can promise the throne. It's not a chair, it's him. The reward is Jesus. The worst church gets Jesus. This should be encouraging to us. David one day was thinking of the father And in Psalm 13, he writes it down. He says, you know what, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is with me. Do you think you could ever be worthy of what God has to offer Yet here, the ones farthest away are the ones encouraged to take the steps to rejoin him. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Like a baby content in its mother's arms, my soul is content. If David, being who he was and who he is when he writes that, with his record He can be a baby, content in God's arms? Be as content as a baby is in his mother's arms? With his record? So what happened to God's church? What happened to us? To the one he conquers, he says, to the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne just as I myself, what? Just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on that throne. See, he doesn't conquer the way that we want to conquer. He doesn't use the cross as a weapon. He doesn't use his power as a weapon. You want to conquer? Sit and eat. <laughs> That's a war I want to be in. Sit and eat? Really? Really? The church has tried conquering every other way in the past 1600 years. Every other way, and as a matter of fact, doing real conquering. But all we have to do is to come in and let him in and what? We don't even have to go to his house. He comes to ours. I know. I know. There's there's somebody out there thinking, yeah, but we got to cook for him. We have taught that what conquering means means some sort of conquering on our own. Faith plus works, human effort plus the power of the Holy Spirit. One day we'll get there. Just try harder. Just keep doing it. Jesus said, "No, your conquering is my conquering." I've already conquered. Have a seat next to my conquering. Be in my conquering. What has to be conquered is my inauthenticity that I don't need, that I can conquer. That's what he wants to open my eyes to. We take our place with him because he has conquered. See, Paul put it this way when speaking of this immeasurable power, by adding, just before our our scripture reading, God put this power to work in Christ when he what? When he raised him from the dead. This is when Christ got this power, is when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand where? In heavenly places. By the way, that's when Ephesus begins, that's when the churches begin, is when he went and took his throne, seated in the high places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age when? Also in the age to come, he says. Do you believe, do you have faith that Jesus was raised from the dead and right now is seated at the right hand of the Father? Do you believe that? Then what else are you asked to believe then? You're asked to believe something else and that was, is that we were what? What? We were dead? You say, well, wait a minute. How could I, I be part of his power if I haven't died? Paul says, you were dead. You were dead through what? You were dead through your sin. You're dead, he says. But, beautiful word right there, but God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up to be with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places that is Christ Jesus. Wait a minute, Lord, when did I die? You died when I died. You died in your sin, I died for your sin. When was I raised up? When was I resurrected? When I was resurrected. And I didn't resurrect you and just leave you in that pew right now, right now in some sort of realm somewhere. You're not seated here. We are seated with him in heavenly places. In in a way, we're not even here. That's how powerful our faith is supposed to be. That's gold that does not lose its value. You're called to believe that your faith allows you to experience your salvation. Not just your justification, but also your sanctification, your holiness, that no matter where we are in our pursuit of holy things, by the way, holy people that are righteous in Christ do pursue holy things. But no matter where we are in our pursuit, you can believe That you are actually seated already in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. Somehow the church thought that was a dangerous message to preach. You can't tell people who are stumbling in sin that they're already saved in Christ, that's just going to lead to a bunch of trouble. That's a church who puts its faith in a gold that loses its value. So Paul's saying, in Christ, you are righteous. In Christ, you are holy. In Christ, you have conquered. To everyone who what? Who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You're gonna learn it in Hebrews as you get to chapter 10. Paul, uh, uh, the author of Hebrews says it too, every priest stands day after day in his service offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down where? At the right hand of the Father. Do you believe right now that Jesus Christ is in heaven as our heavenly high priest? If we believe that, then why don't we also believe this about him? That by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The power of the cross happened, yes, in a point in time. There was a point in history where the power of the cross was manifested. That day, 33 CE, all time, all who had faith before, all who have faith to come after, all who had faith in and then, and now until the second coming, it's all because the power was manifested in that one single offering. From the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Remember what Jesus offers. Every day, wake up, accept the garment that he gives. Take the gold that he gives. Put on the eye salve. In fact, do that first. Show me, Lord, my need. Because I'm tempted to walk out this door rich and of no need. I'm tempted to walk out this door and look at somebody else and judge them for the sin that they don't seem to be able to overcome. I'm tempted to walk out this door and tell people that if they just got their act together, they would belong in my church. The heart is sick and deceitful above all else, says the prophet. Who can trust it? Put on the ISAV. And to me, putting on the ISAV means read your Bible. Study it. Look at it. Read it differently, especially the Old Testament. Look at the characters that you're reading about. Note who they are. Note how they're described. Note that they're completely authentic before God as who they really are. The anger of Moses, David, the two biggest characters in all of Judaism, in all of Israel, are Moses and David. They were both murderers. And they have the nerve and the audacity to look at God and say, show me your glory. And can I just sit in your lap today, Lord? Because that's all I got. That's all I got today. and note how God treats them. That's ISAF. Real people have real problems. God will have a relationship with people who stumble and fall. Not just make mistakes, not just you know transgressions here and there. It's funny, it's funny. Uh, it's a transgression and a mistake if I make it. If you make it, it's a sin. Transgressions, mistakes, sin, real sin. People sin, real sin. And what are we telling them where they belong when they do? The authentic person, the one who has his eyesalve on, the one who sees his condition, opens the door. The inauthentic one keeps the door closed. Fooling himself, fooling others. Let anyone who has what? Let anyone who has ears. By the way, we all have to go down this road of self-discovery. We need to figure out exactly who we are. I found a way Others have found a way in recovery and and that type of journey. There are are thousands of ways to be able to do this. One thing I have to tell you, though, is don't do it alone. Number one, don't do it alone. Number two, don't do it without putting on the ISAF. Number two, don't do it without knowing exactly how God feels about you. Because if you go self-discovering your sin and your sinfulness and your deception without first studying how God feels about you right now, we may not ever see you again. Prophet Zechariah was shown a vision one night. He said, I saw the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a man that has been plucked from the fire? He's filthily dressed. There isn't any hiding as to who he is. He may be Joshua, he may be the high priest, but he's absolutely filthy. Satan has accused him. God comes back to Satan and say, you think you know him? You think you know who he is? You think I made him high priest because I didn't know who he was? Get your hands off him. I know him, I chose him. I pulled him right out of your accusations. I gave him something to believe. And I tried to show him to a church that would show him the same. Sobering to realize that the last church in history is the most troubled. If we are part of this, it is time to get serious. The church has looked for a substitute for love ever since the first century. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. The church has tried everything. They tried to purify doctrine, create orthodoxy. When that didn't work, they gave in to idolatry. They began to use the worldly power. They weaponized the cross and they created Christian empires, Catholic and Protestant. They have, will, and continue to create this American Christian empire to try to promote harmony, but they're still using the same power, fear, and coercion. This one's just wrapped in a flag. The church, just the church, try to separate ourselves from all of that, try to be, uh, not, uh, in, the, be in the world, but not be of it. What about the church, what did we do? What did we do with the wonderful doctrines and the truths that we had? Did we give the love of Christ? Did we show them that sinners can have righteousness? Or did we make it just another attempt to give humanity another run at being perfect? And a little dose of fear in case you don't become perfect. But we proclaim Christ crucified, Paul says. A stumbling block to the church a stumbling block to the believers, foolishness to Gentiles. Satan's purpose is to bring about an eternal separation between God and man. But in Christ, we become more closely united to God than if we had never fallen. Ellen White, The Desire of Ages. Laodicea's problem is there is no need. A Christian finds themselves in constant need. A church that needs nothing doesn't need Jesus. It isn't a Christian church. That's why he's on the outside. Do you remember Sardis was dead, but they had a reputation for being alive? Note, Laodicea doesn't even have the reputation. We can say it all we want. We can say that we are remnant uh, true church of God, uh, the last church of God in in Bible prophecy, so forth and so on. We can say it all we want, but we don't even have the reputation. Jesus said, you think you have a reputation, but that attracts no one. People were attracted to Sardis because they had a reputation. The Reformation said, we've got new theology. We found Jesus again. Come join us. They at least had a reputation that attracted people. Laodicea doesn't even have a reputation. In his love, he strips the last church to its bones, hoping, hoping that we would look up and realize how cold we are and ask for clothing, ask for gold, ask for for the ability to see. People can't accept forgiveness if they don't think there is anything to forgive. And the worst part of it all is that we will always look down on folks who really do need. You can't love people that you look down on. No one was ever won to Christ by a position of moral superiority. We can't nurture people who need because we just can't figure out what's wrong with them. What's wrong with those people? Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. As I pointed out last week, all I we have to do is open the door. Individually, yes. We all need to do it. But the beautiful thing, too, is we all get to do it together, too. We get to go to the door together. We have to put our hands on it together and open it up and let him in. The cured allowed to see it is him. <laughs> Not our righteousness, but his. To become unlukewarm-like, to become hot, all we have to do is open the door. Because once he comes in and sits down, that's nothing but heat right there, amen. amen? Thank you for holding on there with me, Loud to see you. Like I said, we can't find light until we call it in the darkness, right? But he'll call us out. Let anyone hear who has an ear, what the Spirit is saying to them.